Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sleepless Cinematic Podcast, where we explore our shared love for watching and discussing movies recorded in the late after work hours, often in lieu of a good night's rest. I'm Julian. I'm Madeline. And I'm Emilio. And the three of us are colleagues at a Midtown Manhattan music school. Yes, music is what brings us together, but movies are what keep us together talking at the end of the night. So we've decided to create some order to this ongoing trend and record these conversations, considering an overarching theme while we cycle through five distinct categorizable guidelines for engagement. This podcast is an evolving thing. Changes and tweaks here and there will most likely happen, but while we do it, you, the listener, can count on the three of us doing what we've grown to love, foregoing sleep for a discussion about movies every other week. This week, we continue our current cycle of movies related to perceptions of sanity with a category we call Suggestion Box, where one of us elects a film for the group to discuss. At least one of us will be seeing this movie for the first time. In this case, it's two of us. And differing opinions may or may not be held among us, but they are certainly encouraged. (laughs) And as I said, one person um, has seen this movie before. That Uh, would be me. (laughs) Emilio has seen this, and uh, today's film is Shutter Island directed by Martin Scorsese. Yes. One of his, I guess, later period films. I mean, he's had such a storied long career Mm -hmm. uh, that this one literally feels like maybe it came out a couple years ago, Mm -hmm. but it's already about, what, 10, 12 years old? It's 14 years, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and it arrived at uh, kind of an interesting point in his career where it's like, when you look at the broader arc of his career, it's kind of in a transitional time, I would say. Um, at this point, this was his first uh, fiction film in about four years since The Departed. Um, and though it had been filmed quite a bit closer to the release of The Departed. Um, and, you know, it's sandwiched between that and then the fiction film that comes after it is Hugo. Yeah, oh, actually, quite a departure. Absolutely. Yeah. To the point so to that speak. I forgot that was Scorsese. And I was like, I feel like Shutter Island is kind of the least Scorsese, Scorsese movie. And then my partner was like, well, Hugo comes next. Yeah. So. Yes. so he's definitely trying to stretch his legs a little bit. Although, I don't know, it's funny, you know, watching this movie again, I was kind of reminded of the fact that I think Martin Scorsese also, he's kind of into seedier genre movies. Like mm-hmm. I watch this movie and I'm kind of reminded of a a kind of movie that is has simpler ambitions, mm-hmm. you Absolutely. know, something a little bit more like a Cape Fear where mm-hmm. it's really just sort of like a really well-made uh, popcorn film. Yeah. You, know? Yeah. you know, it's not like the most prominent category of Scorsese films, but there is, you know, definitely a category of like these great popcorn thrillers. I mean, these are definitely mm-hmm. like on some level, like edge of your seat kind of creepy movies and Cape Fear is one of them bringing out the dead. I think you'd put there too, which I yeah. also haven't seen K- kind of a weird, a weirder movie, but yeah. I think, um, yeah, I think this one has a little bit more of a, of a narrative thrust. Yeah. Um, but then here we arrive at shutter Island Um, And this, you know, I think it's kind of the midway point between like that phase of his career that um, ends with The Departed and then the one that kind of begins with The Wolf of Wall Street and goes on till today, where like from The Wolf of Wall Street to Silence to The Irishman to most recently Killers of the Flower Moon, there's something consistent about all of those movies. They're like around three hour epic dramas, at least in setting, they can be very different in scenery, they can be very different, but 
in the sweep of their narratives, there's something very similar about them. But he's a very busy guy in that he's not only directing films in this time. Like, he's also directing some television. It's true. He's doing a lot of producing during mm-hmm. this time. So it's like, even though you have these films that I think you can kind of draw a connective thread in some ways, you also have, like, vinyl and, like, pretend it's a city. <laughs> cool. Have any yeah. of us seen pretend it pretend it's a city i watched it all the way through same it was i think very satisfying watch during covid and and we've talked about before that the three of us live in new york city and i think that was a very satisfying series to Mm -hmm. watch at a time when you could not go outside yeah really so that was a way to kind of experience facets of the city that you weren't able to like that had changed in the last in the previous year yeah. I have to admit, this is the first time I'm ever hearing of this. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is wow. 100%. Yeah. So I guess I have something to check out. <laughs> Do you yeah, know no anything about it? No, like not a thing. So when it's... you get, you guys could have, you guys could be pulling my leg right now. We're not. Like I honestly, I'm just like, okay, pretend it's a city. I've yeah. No and idea. I mean, it's not, um, it's not fiction. It's essentially, it's Fran Lebowitz, like just in conversation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. I do yeah. remember. This is the Fran Lebowitz, like, um, not like documentary, but just sort of like yeah. her sort of talking about New York and her favorite. I think I remember yeah. Yeah. about this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, it was like kind of, uh, I don't know if literally memed, but it was parodied at the time for being like, you know, Fran Lebowitz, shares some like kind of old timey hot take about New York and then Martin Scorsese just bursts into laughter. Yeah, his laugh command. is maybe the best part of the, yeah. of this series. And I, one thing that I think about is uh, that she talks about how much she hates the like dog mosaic at the 23rd Street subway station. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, she definitely has opinions. Yeah. yeah, I just, the quote from that series that I remember most vividly is from like the first episode where you see her uh, walking, narr- like narrating um, while she's walking across the uh, city panorama at the Queens Museum of Art. And she's just, there's just a moment where I think she says, um, to people who are irritated by me, I just say, so what? <laughs> just yeah. Fran Lebowitz in a nutshell. Yeah. yeah. And I think like their friendship is part of what um, makes this such a compelling watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine that they've been friends for decades. That's the impression that I get from watching this. Wow. Well, I've got something to check out later, I guess. But continuing with the conversation about Scorsese and TV and, you know, contemporary with Shutter Island around that time, he was also directing the pilot of and executive producing Boardwalk Empire. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I think almost, if not completely simultaneously with Shutter Island, maybe like Shutter Island all, like the production of that happened a little earlier, but in terms of release, they're pretty close together. And so, yeah, Shutter Island is more of just this kind of, straight thriller um, that maybe doesn't reach quite the epic heights of some of the things that Scorsese is a little better known for, like Goodfellas, Casino, mm-hmm. um, or things of that nature. But it's still, in my opinion, I think it's a solid movie by a director completely in command of his craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, one thing I'd say, too, is we mentioned earlier about how this would be this falls into the category of sort of a suggestion film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like the market forces in the world, in the, in the film world, were what were the big suggestors, I think, in this moment. Mm-hmm. We had other other films, right, that we were thinking about yeah. for this time, but I think the um, the timing of the fact that this is being released 
or that we are recording this right around the time of the release of the Killers of the Flower Moon. Yes, um, was I think the thing that really pushed this over the edge. I don't know yeah. if yeah. any of us were particularly drawn and excited. I think in the future, when we we do more suggestion box entries, we'll probably find that one of us is maybe a little bit more passionate to yeah. speak about this than <laughs> yeah. other than um, or than the film we talk about. Then maybe we will be right now. Yeah, like this is a movie that certainly fit into this category, and Absolutely. it was a film that neither Julian or I had seen and I think had both intended to see for a long time. So it was like, oh, this is the motivation. Absolutely. But as you said, Killers of the Flower Moon came out last weekend at the point we're recording this. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I've seen this movie before, but I saw it, I think, probably within a year or two of its initial release. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long time. And honestly, there were a lot of aspects of this movie that I totally forgot. Mm -hmm. So um, I can't say I'm coming into it totally cold. I definitely knew the twist of the film, but it's not like I was dying to talk about this movie that being said uh i think we're gonna have a lot of fun talking about this movie absolutely and i guess we should maybe start with like if you have not seen this movie let's start with heavy spoiler warning this Mm -hmm. is a very twisty movie Mm -hmm. it's the twistiest movie we've covered so far if you somehow have avoided the twist up until this time then be forewarned it will be revealed yes and i think pretty soon i think it's really hard to talk about what makes this movie interesting or special without revealing it pretty much uh, right away. So This is a movie that's on the twist level of a lot of 90s classics, a la usual The Sixth suspects. Sense, Usual Suspects, mm-hmm. uh, Fight Club. Um, you can go on and on. Yeah, yeah. The Crying Game or something like that. Seven. Yeah, Seven. I think yeah. that it was one of the things that actually was the most... Upon finishing the movie, I kind of felt like this was one of those movies that felt a lot like... Uh, a mix of other movies. You yeah. mentioned Usual Suspects. I also thought of The Game, David Fincher's Haven't The Game. Seen it. Haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah. This movie very much feels like a version of The Game, <laughs> um, but just one that takes place in the 1950s, uh, just outside of Boston. Yeah. Um, yeah. In some ways, you mentioned Fincher. I feel like it, and we talked about Fight Club. I think it also is kind of, you said, um, Sixth Sense. It's it's kind yeah. of Shyamalan y. Yeah. Well. yeah. There is yeah. a little yeah. bit of that. I didn't. I didn't think about I mean, that. He's the king of the twist. So, so. Yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. But uh, when we think about great film twists, though, I think probably the most easily correlatable to Shutter Island is one is a movie that is not by any means recent. It's actually quite old as films go. It would be The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm, okay. Uh, which is yep. over 100 years old now. Yeah. Um, and I don't, well, I assume that um, I'm not the only one here who's seen that. I have yes. not seen it. I saw that movie many, many moons ago. Yeah. Um, and Same, it's honestly. cool. It's got a really interesting visual style. I think mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons why it has persisted yeah. um, and why it gets talked about in film school. Um, but yeah, yeah, it kind of, kind of has, I never really thought about that, but yeah. yeah. Honestly, going into this movie, even without knowing anything really substantive about it, I was kind of, um, suspecting there were like, if there's a twist, it's going to be something of kind of that nature. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I, I didn't know the twist going into this, but I still feel like there were, and we'll get into this. There were lines that were like hitting my ear kind of funny that I was like, that means something Mm -hmm. like that. That has a deeper meaning. I also think this movie, oddly enough, and I don't quite know why, but it's sort of, gave me at times um clockwork orange vibes yeah my partner said the same thing yeah that there is sort of this um 
there is this sort of like one guy who is kind of stuck in a, and the systems mm-hmm. forces of all are all conspiring, you know, to kind of um, either hold him down or try to prop him up or that whatever kind of happens uh, because of whatever they're trying to do for him or to him, uh, you know, has some sort of outsized importance mm-hmm. um, for that system. And so... And I gonna, couldn't help but think of, you know, Alex DeLarge and, yeah. you know, all the sort of uh, Ludovico technique treatment and all that stuff. Yeah, they're going to poke you in the eye. Exactly. In yeah. what, what, what does he say? Sort of um, like poke around, I yeah. guess. Yeah. 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 Only a clock, the brain. Orange, a clock Were Orange is a movie that it seems to be a little more geared towards provocation than Shutter Island. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Although I would argue that there are some very provocative and uh emotionally disturbing things that yeah, happen totally. in this film that is true yeah. yeah i think uh the big sort of um flashback realization yeah. in fact it was funny i told my wife about that i said you're probably not going to want want to see this movie because this will make you deeply deeply upset yeah and sure enough she walked in on me right as he's walking through the door, um, mm-hmm. coming back into his oh. home, talking about, and I was like, honey, uh, remember that <laughs> moment I said that you would not like? You happen to have come in at just that moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually just kind of in a coincidence of timing. Earlier this week, I saw um, a movie that's new to me that is actually a rather good companion to Shutter Island, and that is William Friedkin's movie, Bug. I mean, the setting of it is different, but there are some remarkably similar themes between this and Shutter Island, whether it has to do with um, the sort of institutional authority and abuses of it, uh, but also like the way that um, one individual is portrayed, um, you know, who has questionable morals to begin with, but um, is just as much a victim as a perpetrator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the notes that the movie kind of plays with a little bit is Mm -hmm. how much we are supposed to sympathize with the uh teddy daniels slash um uh andrew latis thank you andrew latis yeah um character played by leonardo dicaprio and um yeah, I mean, when you first meet him, there is uh, a little bit of a sort of cocksure attitude and energy about him being a U.S. Marshal. Mm-hmm. And then as the movie progresses and he sort of opens up a little bit to his... Uh, Chuck. Chuck. Yeah, I mean, I was re-watching part of this and I swear it takes them 20 minutes to say <laughs> yeah. Mark Ruffalo's character's name. And in yeah. all my notes, I just wrote Ruffalo. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Thank you. Chuck, I also love how um, uh, you know one of the one of the tells I think when I'm coming back to this movie, one of the things that I was immediately trying to uh, look for. I mean, this movie kind of falls in one of those kind of puzzle film. Totally, uh, it's it's kind of like a puzzle film in that. If you know the twist and you know the ending, when you come back and see it a second time, you're immediately cued in on certain things. They're like breadcrumbing. Yeah, they're absolutely. And so those, some of the ways that the Chuck character speaks to Daniels, totally. he's always calling him boss. You know, that yeah. there's this like pre-scripted kind of vocabulary or lingo that he's using to immediately try to make him feel comfortable, give him the kind of power that he needs in order for whatever might be happening to maybe 
happen smoother. Yeah. And I think that not just calling him boss, but he repeatedly says like, you okay, boss? You all right, boss? What's the matter, boss? I counted and it's six times between sort of, and I could have missed some, but between those three phrases, they're said like six times. Totally. Yeah. He's always checking in and yes, uh, he's almost never not by his side. Um, yeah, which film. which a later character points out to Teddy. He's yeah. like, you've not been alone here. And Teddy's like, hey, I'm just, he's my partner. I'm with my partner. And and that's when this other guy's kind of planting the seed in Teddy's mind of like, well, something's off. Totally. Yeah. You know, I also felt like there were, I couldn't tell if, this is what made the movie feel a lot like the game for me, mm-hmm. which is, and again, not to overly spoil that movie or try to not spoil it, but that movie is about, you know, Michael Douglas character sort of plays like a um, like a business magnet tycoon um, who is uh, a very rich but very lonely guy and his younger brother design or gives him this sort of experience gift. Mm-hmm. There's this corporation that orchestrates a. Uh, a kind of world experience for him that Mm -hmm. as he's living it, it sort of turns into a nightmare. And, um, and so a lot of what ends up happening in Shutter Island is that, you know, there is this, uh, this um, institution uh, there that is also doing a lot of orchestrating. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, what, what kind of, I guess, drives a lot of it for me is that in the game, there are all these like subtle things that characters are supposed to do in order to push things along. Mm-hmm. And so when you see this movie, I, I felt like I was trying to look for certain th- moments where people were trying to push yeah. things along. And I also felt like there were certain things where he was supposed to be U.S. Marshal and that there should be holes in the story. Like yeah. whatever was constructed, like when you look back, there's a nurse who immediately takes back something that she says and she feels really shifty about being like, well, maybe I should have been there. And then there's an orderly who's like, well, I went to the bathroom. And so immediately yeah. it's supposed he's to like sort of... He's like too good at his job. Exactly. Like... <laughs> but they're supposed to make him feel like he's good at his job. Yeah, but I think he actually around. is, genuinely. I mean, yeah. they, they tell him and maybe they're just blowing smoke up his ass, but I feel... At one point, they are like, you are very intelligent. And a lot of something that I picked up on on my partial rewatch was whenever they're talking about Rachel Solando they're because she's not real, they're talking about him, you know, like whenever they're talking Mm -hmm. to Teddy about Rachel and they're saying like, you know, she's, she, um, she's concocted this story so she doesn't have to face what she's done. Um, she's living in this fictionalized universe that she's created for herself. Like she, they are explaining his own condition to him. Yeah. Yeah. And and one thing that they say about her is like, no, she's incredibly intelligent. Mm -hmm. And and I think they believe that about him as well. Well, and yeah, later in the film, it's sort of revealed that he is sort of an exceptional patient there. You know, they have obviously done a lot. They've gone to great lengths to try to heal him. In in order to make it happen. So there must be something about him um, or his situation that is um, exceptional one way or the other. Mm -hmm. What I was thinking about in hindsight too is that there are a lot of moments that narratively the first time you watch it um, and you don't know the twist yet, there are a few moments where initially you think they're kind of jumping the shark um, that you later realize could just completely be a figment of um, Andrew Latus's imagination. 
Um, but like one such moment was maybe like round, you know, when first act leads to second, when then that scene in the mausoleum, when, um, you know, Andrew Latus, when he's still in this, um, Teddy Edwards, um, Teddy Daniels, Teddy Daniels, uh, persona where he's starting to believe that there's a conspiracy on this Island. That moment when he, you know, he believes he's starting to crack it and then the doors of the mausoleum just swing open and then there's, um, you know, the, the warden and his crew are there to collect them. That moment, I mean, it just feels a little too Hollywood almost for even for a Scorsese movie at, uh, at first viewing. Yeah, and then on rewatch, you're like, they've been waiting for him because ev- their entire job this weekend is to follow him around and like make sure they're keeping a close eye on him. Yeah, they even say at the beginning when they get off the boat, they're like, everyone's on edge. Oh, totally. And it's like, yeah. they're on edge because they're setting up this whole um, scenario and they don't know how it's going to go. They, they don't also, know if things are going to turn violent They also know that, yeah, he's incredibly violent when like occasionally. So mm-hmm. they, they're all armed. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, I don't know, he presents some sort of a, th- a thing saying, you know, um, uh, because of this law and this bylaw yeah. or this sub law, we have, I'm supposed to, yes, we have jurisdiction yeah. over this and you have to turn over your firearms. Um, and all that stuff. Which and- at this moment, as Chuck, uh, Mark Ruffalo, he also has to turn over his firearm. Right. And he really like fumbles with, yes, he does. Yeah. with taking it off. And and I think that that's a, Another give a, a clue that he's not actually a marshal, that yeah. you know, he can't he can't even take off his firearm. Totally. Yeah. And then um I think in the same scene, the uh John Carroll Lynch um warden character, Warden McPherson says something to the both of them about being men of violence. Yeah. Um, in reference to the fact that they are war veterans, you know, apart from their status as veterans, like I kind of thought that that reference to them being men of violence, that struck me in hindsight as a possible hint of the unreliable narrator aspect of this, because I think that um, at first, like, Teddy is disconcerted by that assertion. Yeah. Um, he really seems to... I, I, he can't deny it, but he is disturbed by that notion. Um, and then, you know, you, you really start to think initially that Teddy Daniels is this war veteran who is aware of his past, but he's really trying to put it behind him. Sure. Mm-hmm. But then you find out, as you see um, him go through um, other further narrative steps before he realizes what's happening to him, you do see a lot of proof to the contrary that he is in fact a man of violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He has a very short fuse. Yeah. I was going to ask you guys really quick, and I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here. Do we really know that he was a war veteran? I don't think we know that for sure. I feel Mm, like they make some sort of comment later about like, we think that you were at DACO. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They said something to that effect as well. But I felt like the presence of the Max von Sydow character, it could have very well been a projection of his unease or dislike of the institution Mm -hmm. and the authority figures there Mm -hmm. that he could have maybe created a a situation for himself where, where he 
he's the, like a past memory where he developed a deep hatred for Germans or Nazis. Yeah, and he's and, like the good guy here, like opposed to the, exactly. the evil German doctor exactly. experimenting yeah, yeah. on people. I this second time seeing it, that was something that I couldn't help but like I couldn't shake thinking. I was like, yeah. maybe that whole thing is just another extrapolation of his own, um, you know, uh, very, very shaky handle on reality and mm-hmm. and his own sanity. I mean, which is maybe a good segue into the question of like how much of what we see do we think is actually happening versus how much do we think is hallucination? There- yeah. There are some scenes that are pretty clearly posited as dreams or hallucinations. Yeah. Like anything with um his wife. With his wife. Dolores. Yeah. Yes, played, played by Michelle Williams. Like that from the get-go is it's made very clear that those are either memories uh or, or dreams. I think they're or always those. dreams, very yeah. intentionally so. Because, Although yeah. he is talking to the um the guy he beat up, um, George. George, George yeah. Noyce, yeah, and she appears in That's that true, scene too. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So it's dreams, or I think sometimes hallucinations as well. Yeah, uh, probably a little bit of the Tyler Durden effect there. Mm-hmm. Sure, but then, like, I get a little bit more uncertain when I think about a lot of the scenes that are like kind of presented as um, the reality from yeah. um, the beginning of the movie onward. Like, even a little bit about that arrival on the boat there's part of me that wonders if that's even real yeah because i'm like well if uh, assuming that they are they're setting this all up for this elaborate role play to try to cure him which is for those who haven't seen what is happening um we first meet we first see teddy like retching on a boat uh he doesn't like water Mm -hmm. for a reason we'll get to later for sure (laughs) um and and my assuming that they have concocted this elaborate role play, how far out did they send him? And like, when does he kind of snap to to the point of when we meet him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very possible that they put him on the or that they sedated him heavily and then put him on the boat and, and you then see, woke him up. You see some like handcuffs. Sure. So maybe they did. That's a good point. That maybe they sedated him and like locked him up and drove around in circles in the ocean. And then, um, like, I remember one point um, pretty early on in the movie where I was just kind of like, wait, what's happening here? Like, I'm still a little unsure whether we would consider this a real scene or not. But at the point when um, Teddy is beginning to interrogate um, patients at the institution on the island, Mm -hmm. um, and there's two people you really see him speak to, and he asks them about... This, you know, at this point, we don't know the significance of the name Andrew Latis, who um, and at that point, I was just kind of like, wait, where did this come from? Sure. Uh, Because like, you know, as we are told previously um, that, you know, Teddy Daniels, this U.S. Marshal is on this island to investigate the disappearance of Rachel Solando. Um, and then I'm just kind of thinking like, wait, when did it become about this guy? We haven't heard his name so far. Well, at this point though, on rewatch, you have, we have heard the name at this point and and I I wouldn't have picked it up first time, Mm -hmm. but in, in his first kind of dream of him and his wife, Dolores, she says to him like, he's still here. And he's like, who? And she's like, latest. That's right. It's it's easy to miss if you don't know who that is yet. Cause you're like, wait, what did she say? 
also yeah. really helpful if you watch with subtitles, Absolutely, yeah. which yeah. I, I've done and I can't go back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's just how I see things now. Uh, yeah, like honestly, I did notice that name the first time, but it's like it's not given to you in a really crystal clear fashion. Yeah, totally. They're just trying that, to sneak it in so they can bring it up in this scene you're referring to now. Yeah, those interview scenes. And it's worth noting too on the casting front that the two patients who he speaks to there are played by some character actors with interesting credits. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is played by a guy named Christopher Denham, who, um, I mean, the really notable credit at this point in time is that um, he was in Oppenheimer playing uh, the scientist Klaus Fuchs. Uh, but then the other one is Robin Bartlett. That's the actress who plays the patient Bridget. Mrs. Who, Kearns. Mrs. Kearns, um, who at least I know from Inside Lewin Davis. She yeah. plays Lillian Gorfine in that movie. And she's also in The Fablemans. Yes. And I, like, I... Um, I wouldn't remember off the top of my head her character in that. I think she's she's a member of the family. Her name, uh, according to Wikipedia, is Tina Schildkraut. That means nothing to me. Yeah. <laughs> is that her actress? No, no, that's the that's name. The character, oh, the character in the Fableman. <laughs> that's right. Pardon me. I, I got a little lost there for a second. But yeah, my question in relation to Peter and Mrs. Kearns here is, are these actual patients? or like Because mm. why, why yeah. are they trusting these two people with this task of meeting with Teddy? Like yeah. when they could and do like kind of, Blow it for Blow him. it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they have the other patients on that he sees on the walk. Mm-hmm. One of them kind of waves and smiles yeah. in a knowing manner. The other one who looks incredibly ghoulish. Very scary. Yeah, yeah pretty freaky. Um, just kind of puts her finger up to her lips shh. to say shh or to, um, to do that, which maybe in retrospect is or her, was her relaying instructions she was given right mm-hmm. to maybe yeah. be quiet or whatnot. Uh, but, yeah. but the other thing that I was wondering is you remember how he tries to agitate him by rubbing the yeah, pencil the light pencil, against the paper, which that I skipped felt, over a second time. Cause I was like, this agitates me success. Yeah. The, um, but that felt like a very knowing moment between the two of them. That's a good like point. it was yeah, one of those weird yeah. things where it was like, he knew that a way to get under his skin was to make that sound. That's a good yeah. point. Cause you are kind of like, why first time you're like, why does he know that this is going to irritate the guy so much? And my assumption was like, well, I find that noise very irritating. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was sure. just wondering, is this like a very typical tactic of, of interrogation in the 1950s? Yeah. Maybe. But it, yeah, it, like, yeah, who knows? Very, and and very Mrs. Possible. Kearns is not a particularly good liar. Like she's yeah. very composed in the first half, but as soon as he starts asking questions, she like is yeah. very shifty and exactly. like looking back and forth at Ruffalo, who's later revealed to be their doctor. Exactly. And yeah. she even mentioned something to the effect of, right, he's a really good looking guy. Oh, yeah. Or he's like, he's not hard on the eyes, as not my hard. mother would say. And it shoots mm. to, to Chuck at this point, like kind of trying to subdue a grin. Exactly. Although, crucially, um, <laughs> Mrs. Kearns, she, um, you know, at the moment when she sends um, Chuck um, up to get that glass of water, she. Um, quickly steals Teddy's notebook and writes run. Yeah. And I would say that maybe she's like flattering Chuck before that. Yeah. So that he's comfortable enough to leave her there. Yeah. And then very possible. Yeah. And, and she's sympathetic to, um, Teddy or as we later find out, Andrew lettuce's, um, plight. 
Yeah, and this, uh, maybe what you were going to get to is that they, I mean, they end this interview with like, do you, have you ever met a patient or heard of a patient named Andrew Latis? And yeah. she gets very shifty at this point because she's talking, talking to, to him. Talking to Andrew <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just like, you know, it, it's, you know, there are other movies where you just find out some name that initially is faceless that mm-hmm. just becomes like, um, you know, this object of terror. Maybe yeah, it's, like it's a boogeyman. A Kaiser mm-hmm. Soze. Sure. It's, it's mm-hmm. that kind of name or, um, or like, I, I feel like there's a character in Memento like that too. I was just mm-hmm. going to yeah. say, that was the movie that I also thought a lot about yeah. when yeah. I was watching this is yeah. that the Teddy Gamble character mm-hmm. very much feels a lot like yeah. the, the, the institution. Yeah. You Don't know, believe he, his lies. he sees, right. But he yeah. sees somebody who, um, he feels like he can profit from or he can m- like manipulate essentially yeah. um, in some ways, maybe altruistically to kind of help this guy um, along, but then realizes that he's so far gone that he has to go to more drastic measures. Yeah. And that's kind of what happens in this movie. It's yeah. like, it's true. These, you know, there are some very drastic measures taken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's a moment, I forget exactly when in the movie it falls. Um, but like, I think, at a moment when Teddy is starting to put things together and you start to see um, some things play in reverse. See, like the burning of his cigarette happens in reverse. Yeah. And I mean, very memento like. Exactly. Very much like that first scene of memento. I felt like in that scene, it was designed to be your moment as the viewer and for him to almost remember again. It's like he walks right to the edge of the the, the truth. And, and we, then backs away. And we later find out that they've had this breakthrough with him before. Yeah, and and before. he's regressed, which is ultimately what we see yet again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that that scene, like the reverse, um, the, the, the scene that's played in reverse happens like around like that portion, maybe like two thirds of the way through the movie when um, Teddy is walking through the abandoned um, Ward C. You know, he's going through there looking for Andrew Latis, uh, thinking he's a different person. Yeah, it's like that's the moment when he kind of almost puts it together after he's, I believe it's after he's spoken with George Noyce. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Great one-scene character played by Jackie Earl Haley. Yes, whose face is totally burned in my brain from the movie Little Children. I haven't Have you guys seen, seen that. that movie. Yeah, that no, was kind of his Todd big Field. his big coming back out party as mm-hmm. an actor, and uh, plays a a very difficult character in that <laughs> film. But it's if you've ever seen that movie, you never forget him. Yeah, and I, I like when I was watching it, I was thinking at first it was Pete Postlethwaite playing that character. It looks a little bit like yeah. Pete Postlethwaite. Yeah, yeah. So those very pronounced cheekbones. <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah, and this like it would have been just a little too far in the Kaiser Soze direction. <laughs> <laughs> Pete Postlethwaite, I think, right around this time was also in the town. That's right, right. And he has a very memorable. He's the 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 florist, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I I don't actually mean that. That's his his main profession, but yeah. that's his that's his cover. Yeah, yeah. It's he's a bad bad man. Waste <laughs> management. Yeah, yeah that's his waste management. Like, right, right. But right. um. Yeah, that's um, but that's also a Boston movie, The Town. Yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. Um, and well, Shutter Island, it's not set in Boston proper, but it's, it's set in Boston Harbor. Yeah, there you go. The um, what do they call Leonardo it? Leonardo DiCaprio definitely is putting on a little bit of this Boston accent. accent. I gotta say, I like Leo in this movie, but sometimes he hits the accent so strong. Yeah, yeah. he definitely does. I, I mean, 
The Departed, another Scorsese film. Yeah. Probably, I mean, filmed, what, two, three years apart or so? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Uh, maybe four years, I guess. Um, but yeah, um, all, b- both set in Boston with those Boston accents. I couldn't help but think of his character, yeah. The Departed, mm-hmm. too. Though I don't remember having any moments like that in The Departed where I, like, I wasn't buying the accent. Yeah. Um, that I was pretty sold throughout that movie, on not just on his, but on all the characters' yeah. accents. Well, I think his character also, they make, they make jokes about his accent or they reference his accent about how he changes his accent in order to sound like he comes from a different part of Boston, uh, a more affluent part of Boston. So he right away, you already get a little bit of a pass um, at the beginning of that movie that he might sound, it might be a little thicker one way or the other. And it's just part of his character and how he grew up and how he tried to code switch essentially. Um, So but yeah. Whereas in Shutter Island, I do agree with you, Madeline, that there are a couple moments where the Boston accent just felt a little too put on. Yeah, and there's also like Ruffalo kind of has a Boston accent in this, even though Chuck is meant to be from Seattle. Right. <laughs> or Portland or yeah. it's, they keep or, going back and forth. Yeah. Oh, that's I guess yeah. from Seattle or somewhere. Yeah. In the there's Northwest. like a real moment where it seems like um, Andrew, the, the da- Ted Daniels, Teddy. like tries to is trying to catch him in the act. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, he says something about that. Yeah, I think that maybe Teddy, in his mind, is familiar with an office in Portland and not so much in Seattle. So he's like, "You're from Portland, right?" And and Chuck is always like, "No, I'm I'm from Seattle." Both of these are ridiculous. You do not sound like you're from either of these places. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know who also is not from the place that I think she uh, originally is from is but is Emily Mortimer. I've seen Emily Mortimer in many, many things over the mm-hmm. years and uh, was pretty convinced watching yeah. her. Yep. Good, uh, good, good on, good on you. Same. Yeah. It's like, I think m- like most of the time when you see her in things, like she is using um, her, her na- British accent. Her British yeah. accent. Yeah. yeah. So this is a little bit unusual. Yeah. And this is another, like this movie has a couple of great one scene roles. Um, and I mean, if you look tech in a technical way at the script, I mean, Emily Mortimer does appear in I think more than one scene on paper, but it's really just one scene where she gets to shine. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the very, very end, you get to see her one more time. Yeah. Yeah. And it sort yeah. of revealed that she is a nurse um, kind of playing a That's role. That's right. Yeah. Which, which is to say that part of what makes her performance and a lot of the performances in this film so, so compelling is that they have to work in different ways. Like they have to make you buy into the universe in your first watch. But once it's revealed what happens, you have to be able to say like, oh, well, this was a, a nurse playing the part to try to cure him and help him move through this delusion but the nurse in universe is a great actress yeah yeah yeah. she's wonderful yeah (laughs) totally like academy award winning (laughs) actually i think Um, you were were talking about other kind of like one scene um mm -hmm. uh standout performances i mean patricia clarkson of course rachel the other rachel (laughs) was also fantastic i mean a great great exposition um, deliverer and mm-hmm. uh, has that wonderful like nervous energy yeah. Yeah. that completely plays fantastically to his own um, I guess paranoia mm-hmm. right like she's supposed to be a manifestation yeah. of all of the conspiratorial thoughts that he is having and um, yeah man I mean she totally uh, helps keep 
I think the viewer and him in that state a little totally. further. She yeah. plays it so convincingly that mm-hmm. up until this point, like I'm still totally bought in. I'm like, yes, these people are all Nazis and they're experimenting on people and they're like violating human rights laws. And, and really like I was bought into this for a really long time. Like even after they sort of revealed the twist um, that he is a patient at this facility, I'm still like, no, no, because Patricia Clarkson told me that I can't (laughs) trust you. Yeah. Yeah. And, And you know, they say that she's not real, but, I don't know, man. She <laughs> felt so real to me. I didn't want her to not be real. Well, yeah. I was like, whatever, you know, Andrew Latest, like if he is concocting characters with that level of um, like emotional core, yeah, just that let he's him, got, let him he's be. got something special going yeah. on. Totally. And I love the moment where she says that she used to work here and he's like, oh, you were a nurse. And she was like, I was I'm a, a doctor. doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Get it straight, dude. Yeah. But then <laughs> a you well respect and came from a well respected family. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. I know. And, well. Like I feel like Patricia Clarkson's a particularly good person to cast for delivering lines like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like what my one of my main associations with her, and I'll preface by saying I have not watched this sh- this show start to finish, but the one time I decided to flip onto Broad City just while channel mm-hmm. surfing. There is a very memorable episode where she plays a drunken party hostess. <laughs> I think for me, oddly enough, it was that movie, The Station Agent. Haven't seen mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I remember so that movie came out right in that sweet spot when I was working at the video store a mm-hmm. lot. Um, and that was one of those hot little indie movies that came out. And I remember taking it home. And I think that's the first um, connection that I have with yeah. her in there. For she's me, I, I think of her as, I, I hate this, but I, I think of her as like, she's Emma Stone's mom in Easy A. Oh, mm. I love Easy A. And that's like Never a movie. That oh, came it's out, really good. That came out like right as I was graduating high school. And so I think I was absolutely the target to McCrae yeah. in this movie. Yeah, it's, and it's she is quite good. so good as the mom in that. Yeah. And yeah. Stanley Tucci's the dad. Yeah, Stanley yes. Tucci's I, the dad. That's that's a very satisfying sort of like teen parental. I think I think that was the one. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, Um, good stuff. I mean, there are a lot of a lot of great um, you know one scene performances. Um, Yeah, we were. I think you mentioned uh, John Carroll Lynch earlier. Yeah, Norm Gunderson. I can't help or to me also. No, we've mentioned it before, but um, you know, in Zodiac, Arthur Lee Allen. Arthur Lee Allen. Yeah, yeah. I can never shake his performance from that movie from my mind. He is always that guy, um, even if he sometimes is Norm Gunderson too. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) and. yeah, it's and then one other um, actor who I mean who has more than one scene, but really just has kind of one defining scene to shine is the Ted Levine Warden character. Yeah, who, yeah, whose voice tipped me off first yeah. that yeah. it was Ted Levine. Yeah, because I I just immediately heard him heard the um the Buffalo Bill. Ooh, it rubs the lotion on its skin. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that weird sort of like his words sit in the back of his throat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. He's got a interesting vocal delivery but it's like yeah. an sure. instant tell i mean i before i saw his face i was like what's buffalo bill doing on this island right yeah. now yeah. Yeah. and it seems like that character finds this whole experiment to be just hilarious like yes. he's grinning in every scene that's right and then like that's kind of making me think i think the first time you see that character's face is in this moment right as um teddy daniels is about to drift off into dream like he's being, I think he's in the midst of a migraine. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And there's like he's um, overwhelmed by bright lights. Right. And um, I, th- I think it's right before he drifts off to sleep, 
And this is the sequence where I think we, you know, at first we, we put what we think is a face to Andrew Latus, who he sees in the same chair that he had seen Dr. Nehring. The, oh, the right, the one with mm-hmm. the giant scar across his yeah. face? So yep. played you know, another great one scene role played by Elias Codius. Oh yeah, that um, guy, man. Yeah, another great character actor. Yeah, he's that guy. I feel like is always in um, movies, like and just in the the most random scenes. Yeah, I, I know he's also in Zodiac. Um, oh right, yeah, right, he's in Zodiac, right. um, and I think I remember him from the thin the thin red line too. Never seen that. Yeah, that's that he's in that one as well. And but. I remember him uh, from his um, sole appearance on The Sopranos as the um, the intervention leader. Oh my god! Yeah, that's one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah one he's of the like, please no yeah. judgments. Yeah. He's like so he's like I don't write nothing down. <laughs> You're just, I'm sorry. That's a whole. Yeah. I I love that episode that, that's, so much. That one scene. If you don't like, if you don't like, nip it in the bud. You're just gonna quote it relentlessly. I know. Like, it's so not great. you specifically. Yeah. One would do. No, that. no, 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 no. Yeah, no, I, me specifically and possibly others. <laughs> yeah, I love that scene. You're absolutely right. Oh yeah. my god. All right. Great. Um, Wonderful. But yeah, then this dream sequence. We you know we put what we think is a true face to Andrew Lettuce. Lettuce. Um, oh, I like lettuce. Yeah, leafy greens. Yeah. Leafy greens. Uh-huh. I like that. Andrew yeah, lettuce. I can't decide in my head whether to pronounce it one way or the other, but I, I'm kind of cool with lettuce. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, you know, the produce. Makes it seem like something a little healthier. Maybe. <laughs> yep. But yeah, um, yeah we, we see what we think is a face that we can put to him. And I think that this is uh, worth noting Shutter Island was released in the same year as Inception. And the DiCaprio character experiences a dream within a dream. Oh my yeah. gosh, <laughs> guys! Totally. Though this, this movie, is, this is getting way, way too meta. <laughs> no, in in a wonderful way. Sorry. Yeah. Though this did um, come before Inception and release. Right. And I find his concoction of uh, lettuce uh, really interesting because he's like created this guy to be as scary looking as possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he has this, you know understandable intense guilt of what he's done that he's like only a monster could Mm -hmm. do this yeah i also thought it was really telling that he's sitting in the max von sido's chair Mm -hmm. his character's chair yeah because dr nehring the max von sido character is strongly suggested to be a nazi who has fled germany yeah and then that actually is a pretty good segue into an aspect of this movie that I think this is one of the things that really kind of keeps you on Teddy's side before you realize the twist, which is its portrayal of institutional abuse. Mm -hmm. And when you consider the time that this is set in 1954, I mean, this is contemporary with MKUltra. And, you know, this, you know, what we now know were like a series of CIA sanctioned institutional medical abuses. Yeah. Um, if not just complete, you know, torture and sometimes murder that, um, that occurred completely legally. You know, when you see this Dr. Nairing character, um, who, you know, we are, um, led to believe is a, is a Nazi, um, you, you sort of feel like that could be true. Yeah. Yeah. Just in general, there is a deep, undercurrent or overcurrent or of distrust yeah. mm-hmm. that is uh, sewn right into this movie right away. Um, that the We haven't even talked about Ben Kingsley's character, yeah, yeah. Dr. Exactly. Pauly, but um, that, you know, he plays this sort of, well, the two of them, I guess, play like kind of ultra slick 
yeah. um, sort of doctors and kind of heads of their of their institution. Um, and they always seem to have an answer for everything. And they always seem to also be able to um, kind of use their intelligence and their wit to kind of turn things around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anytime they feel like maybe... Andrew Latis or the 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 U.S. Marshal version of Andrew Latis sort of tries to get a one up on them. They seem to always kind of tamper him down, mm-hmm. whether yeah. it's uh, with their words or whether it's some sort of uh, like bureaucratic bureaucratic like, thing, or when they he actually starts giving him medication. Yeah, yeah, which happens I think a couple times. Yeah, happens just pretty like, early. Take this yeah. Pretty much as soon as he gets there, yeah. he's yeah. like, "I'm having uh, a migraine," and they're like, "Cool, take this." And and I was like. They gave it to him in one of those little tiny white cups that you see people take medication out of in films like this. And I remember from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And mm-hmm. that was another moment for me early on where I was like, he is not mentally well because they gave him a little cup to take his medicine out yep. of. Yeah. yeah, they didn't even show him the bottle. <laughs> you know, they didn't open it, you know, themselves. No safety locks, no nothing like that. So, yeah. 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 I mean, on the subject of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, mm-hmm. I mean, have, that having been a movie that we also recently saw and, and discussed, I was wondering if there was any sort of, if this movie was trying to create sort of an exceptionalism uh, kind of feeling around the Andrew Latest character, the mm-hmm. way that the um, Milos Foreman, I guess, kind of tries to portray it for Mick Murphy. Mm. Um, if there was something also about him, you know, before, before we kind of see him, if there was some sort of, uh, a, 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 like a presence that he has there amongst other people that are other patients, uh, that is kind of outsized or maybe that he's, he's a little bit, um, uh, of a, a potential agitator outside of the violence that he apparently caused. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or maybe this was just an ex- a sort of exceptionalism that he is seeing for himself to make him feel like his plight is something greater than it really is. But sure. For, with the links that they've gone to, like you have to, you have to assume that they have some sort of special yeah. interest in, in healing yeah. him. On connections to one flew over the cuckoo's nest, though, I mean, like one thing that stood out to me that uh, was a little more kind of in the setting of the milieu for the movie was um, in kind of in the um, the racial coding of the characters where mm. it's like all like I think in uh, Shutter Island the only black characters you see are all orderlies at the yeah. institution. They talk about how this is the only um, institution of its kind in the US. Mm-hmm. So I mean when we talked about Cuckoo's Nest we were like well I mean it's sort of assumed that the there are different institutions at this point. The yeah. institutions are segregated. But, yeah. but in Shutter Island this is the only institution of its kind so it's like in some ways you kind of look at it as like Black people in this point of time are not given the opportunity to um, access rehabilitation in this way. Uh, criminally insane, quote unquote, black people, like they don't have a Shutter Island. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I Int- think that's a that's a very good point. Interesting to note that the facility in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is set like kind in Portland. Of, in Portland. Yeah. In Salem, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Salem, Oregon. Kind of like ambiguously Portland. Yeah. yeah. It's very possible that maybe uh, uh, the Chuck character, Dr. Nehan, maybe was uh, 
maybe was uh, there in Salem. I don't know right? if you've heard yeah. he's from Seattle. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but then maybe... Um, maybe, I don't know, may, maybe he was working in, in Portland, <laughs> in, in the area, in the Oregon area at some point. But yeah, in thinking about the, um, well, the, the inherently subjective aspects of this movie, um, I mean, like, when you think about the kind of central impulse of Teddy Daniels at first, there's this strong revenge impulse and that mm-hmm. this is where memento. i think we can well memento, I felt memento in a yeah. big way there that's too. that's a good connection to make so i'm sorry to cut no, you no, 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 yeah. no no thank you for mentioning that but i the connection that really stood out to me there was actually to other scorsese movies the movie i thought about the most was actually the departed not because of the boston connection but um kind of the pace of the movie um, much of Shutter Island has this kind of brisk pace that reminded me a lot of The Departed. Yeah, you know, we were you were mentioning about how um, other films that he was going to release later in the decade have a little bit more of this epic scope, three plus hour mm-hmm. films. Um, you know, this movie is about two hours and ten ish yeah, minutes or so, yeah. but it certainly feels and moves with a lot of like propulsive energy yeah you know and you're and you're not in any scenes really that are not designed to ramp up the suspense yeah and and ramp up your own feelings of uh you know what can i trust what's really happening and so you're 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 constantly sort of um engaged with this movie in a way where you're trying to figure it out Yeah. yeah as you go and so um I think you mentioned the Shyamalan comparison yeah. and it oddly enough feels, <laughs> I think that's pretty, pretty appropriate, but yeah. you know, it's a lot more of a kind of, a, a, a an easier pop culture, you know, pill to swallow. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I watched this movie in two parts just for time this week and, and because of that, this, my viewing of the second half by the end of it, I was like, Wait, wait, it's over. <laughs> I like it. Just the second half for me flew by. Yeah. Um, and to the point that I'm like, oh, I really should have watched this straight through. And if I had had time, I absolutely would have because I, I by the end of the second half, I was like, I still want another hour of this movie. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No. 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 It, it, I will say, um, you know, the the very end of the film when he gets to the lighthouse and Doctor Collie's characters up there waiting for him why are you all wet baby yeah. oh that's right <laughs> that maybe was the only laugh out loud moment i had it's the movie. so funny yeah, yeah. it's why a little, are you all a wet, little baby? strange you're it's right alarming yeah. yeah it is a little alarming yeah and coming from this you know very proper english Stoic. accented voice that ben kingsley has it's just like it's so surprising i will say there was one detail in that um in that scene that felt a little overkill to me. In the lighthouse scene. In the lighthouse scene. And I am, the, uh... I'm a sucker for wordplay. I love wordplay. <laughs> but when they he just pulled the curtain on the whiteboard <laughs> and revealed yeah. the anagram names, I was yeah. like, okay. I think this was that was the one moment that took it over the edge. I'm like, I think you guys are being just like a tiny bit too cute. Yeah. 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 That's why at this point, they reveal this and I'm still like, they're messing with him. Like I'm, I'm still like this. I don't believe them. Patricia Clarkson is so convincing that yeah. I clung to her scene. Gotcha. And you, you have so much of this. You have great distrust for really anything that would come out of them later. Exactly. Yeah. Right. If, if they, if they tell you that she's not real, you're like, I I'm call like, bullshit on I anything else. I just saw else. her. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's really not until Chuck, Mark Ruffalo, it like comes out that right. I'm like, 
uh, okay, now I, 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 I'm more, I believe you now. I think okay. I had the same feeling. It's like, it's the moment when he arrives and I'm like, oh, wow, this is a setup. Yeah. Yeah. And Mark Ruffalo is revealed to actually be named Dr. Lester Sheehan, who is uh, up until this point, a faceless figure. In the- it's been told to Teddy and Chuck that Sheehan left on vacation. Yeah. And yeah. they're like, that's really irresponsible of you to like have a missing patient. And then her primary care psychiatrist just like leaves also to go to like to Bali. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, and he answers it so funny. He's like, well, it was already scheduled <laughs> or something. Yeah. yeah. But also one of those details where I was like, they have to create just enough imply negligence on their part just enough yeah. to keep him there um around looking for clues and for him to to more fully inhabit his old u.s marshal self yeah because it continues to like build this institution as being very corrupt and, and build these doctors these psychiatrists as being these like people like with their clipboards and their stethoscopes yeah. and their cushy chairs and right. their board meetings so what do we think about them at the end this is one of the like lingering questions i had which is like i think throughout the film you are made to deeply deeply distrust uh, the Dr. Colley character, mm-hmm. the uh, Nehring character, and pr- pretty much anybody associated with the kind of institutional authority there. Yeah. But at the very end of the film, you're—it's almost kind of flipped on its head. Yeah. Where you're—you're you're almost sort of asked to to um, to suddenly see them as people who have Andrew Latus's best interests in mind and that they're really actually trying to help and that maybe the all the sort of talk of this being a really actually very special place that is meant to uh, look out for uh, people even if they are criminals yeah so do we do we are we convinced that this place is actually good see I at the time I think no and and still no but but on my partial rewatch I I was really struck by Collie Ben Kingsley's character Dr. Collie I and I think that you do sense some real compassion for like from him yeah. towards Teddy throughout the film even though the film presents him as distrustful and I think understandably so he does put so much emphasis on on referring to everyone as patients rather than prisoners and and teddy is like well they're violent offenders like they've murdered people i I don't i I, I don't don't, have time for them yeah Yeah. i i don't care about their comfort and and, you know collie is like you know i'm i'm here to treat not to judge like i'm i i and he says the greatest obstacle to rachel's recovery was her refusal to face what she did like he i think is very gentle with Teddy in a lot of ways um, until you until he you know what is actually going to happen until you know what's actually going to happen yeah. and I think that's like the real one of the real dark parts of this film of which there are several is that like at one point he's talking about the like old school of thought versus the new school of thought for like mental health care and it's like well either like surgical procedures like lobotomy or like medication and like either way you're just sort of subduing the patient and putting them in a corner and 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 not actually working to treat them or make them better yeah and i think that that's one of the things that i guess happens towards the end is that it seems like what he was trying to orchestrate was a sort of last ditch effort totally. to get uh, to to prevent the old school way of yeah. kind of coming in and saying well look he's done x y and z and 
for any number of reasons, we have to take these very extreme measures. Yeah. And he says in that same scene, like what should be a last resort is like the first option or whatever he says. And I think he, he is at the point with Teddy where he's like, this is the last resort and this is, we have gotten there. We have Mm -hmm. tried everything else. Also. So one of the details that I did not remember when I rewatched this film was the very, very end. Mm-hmm. And I really liked the very, very end yeah. of this yeah. movie. I thought it was really beautifully acted and really well written. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I completely forgot. I think for me and my uh, memory of this film, it sort of ends uh, or it had ended up until uh, rewatching it now on kind of the big twist. Yeah. Just realizing that, oh, he's actually a patient there. Oh, um, you know, he actually murdered his wife um, and that he's carrying this guilt around and that's what's getting in the way. But the very end of the movie, yeah, presents that scenario. It's like all of this was done in an attempt to keep a lobotomy from happening or something even worse, something that would, um, for all intents and purposes, pretty much take away uh, his humanity. So one of the things I loved Mm -hmm. about it was that he plays it um, the uh, Andrew Latest, or I, I'm going to say Leonardo DiCaprio, the yeah, actor, he is chooses this. chooses to play this from a perspective of he has to say enough to his doctor, Mark Ruffalo's character, to convince him enough that he is not remembered or that he cannot live in reality still. Mm-hmm. Or he acknowledges the sort of duality of yeah. his of his situation, and so when he's leaving, it's I don't know. It's sort of implied that he actually has accepted reality, yeah, but he that he knows. doesn't want he doesn't want to live anymore, thinking he's a monster. Yeah, I yeah. took it as he. I kind of read this as he has regressed to a point. At, like I don't think that the the like progress and acceptance of what he's done has necessarily stuck. But I, I do think that he ultimately understands what he does kind of agree to and kind of march forward to. For me, it felt very much like he was submitting or, or that, that the Labadi was actually going to sort of almost cure him, but yeah. that he needed to say, he's like, I don't know, you know, Chuck, uh, it seems like we got to, um, you know, wait around a little longer mm-hmm. or something like he has to inhabit that guy one yeah. more time just for Chuck to be like, Oh no, this dude's done. Yeah. And, and then, and then have them green light, whatever they're going to do or take him away. Um, just enough that he, um, you know, can, can have that ending. And well, I mean, one question about that final line where, um, where DiCaprio's character asks Sheehan if it would be worse to live as a monster or to die as a good man. Um, do we think he really has like, you know, when he says as a good man, do we think that he really has redeemed himself in some way or that he's just accepting he's going to be, you know, by being lobotomized, he's going to be brought into this illusion? Well, what's messed up is like, what, I mean, yes. He murdered his wife. Mm-hmm. She had killed... Set fire to killed, their old apartment, apparently. Yeah, killed their children and set fire to their home and wanted to die. And and so it's like, well, yes, you should not murder your spouse under any circumstances. But like, I got to say that in the grand scheme of things, I don't think what he did was all that bad. Yeah. There's an argument 
uh, to be made for how um, he he is not a monster for having done that. Yeah, yeah. I, I I agree with it's that. It's a crime of passion. It's yeah. a crime of passion. Yeah. And, and I think ultimately, like, he felt as though he was ending her suffering, like, as someone who he loved deeply, who was deeply unwell, who was deeply unhappy, who had caused harm to other people that he loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't know. His kids. I mean, yeah, yeah, like the people like who he loved more than anything. And I, yeah, I just, I think that I understand why you would have this like guilt that you could never overcome from doing something like that. But I don't think he's a monster. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's, that central situation, I think is what also keeps us, the viewer on his side. And one thing that I like about Leo is I don't think that Leo is someone that I automatically always side with. Like I, I think about Wolf of Wall Street where I like pretty quickly turn on him in that movie, but I still find him very compelling to watch. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, one of the great, I think, um, characteristics of him as an actor is yeah. that he does not have to be likable to but be he, a yeah. compelling yeah. Um, you know presence on screen but he does have this ability to like when he, you are supposed to side with him like he got he's got you in the palm of his hand oh yeah yeah, yeah. i think this movie has some of the best Leonardo DiCaprio crying. It's it's true, he's yeah. He's such a good choir. Yeah. Like that yeah. first dream se- sequence, he's just like holding Michelle Williams and there's like this like raining ash that's like kind of sparkling and she's yeah. like, you have to let me go. And he's just sobbing like into her the side of her face. And it's just a beautiful scene. Yeah, yeah. I think- yeah and, and I think that scene too, it's... Again, on rewatch, it's sort of designed to show you that he is deep enough in his delusion that he's still thinking about her being a victim of the apartment fire. Yeah. Yeah. And she, and I gotta say, I find her character really, really interesting Mm. um, because she is presented as a victim and like I and she's presented as kind of a like a Nolan kind of wife like dead yeah. wife <laughs> um, yeah, well, can you explain that by the way another I think I know I think I know what that means but it's another connection to inception exactly yeah. like you you think about inception and you think about uh Marianne Cotillard's character in inception and, and like Oftentimes, Nolan will will bring beautiful, tortured women into his movies that had whatever, something tragic happen right, to them. That whatever tragic happens to them is what's it, driving exactly. the ma- their their husbands or their exactly. They're used as some sort of tool catalyst, exactly, to yeah. then you know make the man like per, like push him along on his journey. Another memento. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I think that she's presented at first glance in this way in this movie. And then you and then find out that she's the villain, yeah. you know, yeah. more or yeah. less, as much as there's a villain in this movie. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I would definitely think so too. I don't know why I um remembered the very the the enormously tragic scene in this movie. I remembered it a little differently, I think. I remember her being a little more uh um maniacal. Yeah. I remember there being a little bit, at least for me, it was like there was a little bit more of like a, a real villainous turn. And I think this time watching it, I I was struck a lot more with just the the real uh unfortunate like and and profound sadness of what 
people can do when they're hurting. Yeah, yeah. she is delusional. She is not evil. Yeah. Like, she's not villainous. Well, she certainly does evil things. I mean, she does things, evil, yes. villainous yeah. things, but it doesn't come from a place of malice, I don't think. It, come, yeah. it comes from, like, a place of delusion where even after she has, uh, she's implied to have drowned them, she still thinks they're alive. She's yeah. like, they're going to be our dolls and we're going to take them inside and, like, have dinner. That's some Jeffrey Dahmer. Style stuff. Yeah. Just thinking about the Michelle Williams performance here, it kind of made me think of some of the more heightened roles that um, she's been in. Have either of you seen Manchester by the Sea? Oh my God, Mm. yes. Yeah. There's another rather dark connection to that movie. Oh, yes. I was thinking, I thought of it too. Yeah. The kids and the the dead kids and her role in that. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. but the difference in Manchester by the Sea is that it's an accident in that movie, right? Whereas, it is, yes, it's and she's actually um, a victim in there too, right? Yeah, but then in this, it it's you know we've gone into what it is in Shutter yeah. Island, but then I feel like like Manchester by the Sea is another Michelle Williams role where you really see her just in this very heightened state of emotion. But yeah, I mean, uh, the just the kind of reckoning of um, like a. A, a massive family tragedy. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's and, at the center of those, t- of, yeah. of two of them. Yeah. And then in the Fablemans, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, the, the plot of that movie is very different, but there's a certain frequency that she's kind of tapped into that's very similar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's another role where she's playing like a mother who maybe doesn't really want to be a mother. Yeah. Uh, yep. And, and, you know, is dealing with her own mental health struggles on top of having to play mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then I was thinking too, I don't know if there's really any connection to draw here other than the proximity and time, but that Shutter Island, it's released, um, two years after the death of Heath Ledger. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was shot in 2008, mm-hmm. probably like yeah. really shortly after he passed away, honestly. So yeah, when I picked up yeah. on this timing, I was like, I wonder if that's any motivation of her taking this role. Like yeah. it is like if, if someone that you have children with, you know, who you very recently were in a relationship with tragically passes away before their time. Like I do imagine that there are different ways to kind of, um, go through like, work through that trauma and I, I wonder if a movie like this could play into that yeah it just yeah. seemed yeah. remarkably close to that experience I thought it must have I mean I can imagine it having been painful for very, her very too painful yeah. for sure yeah. one big thing we have not talked about yet though the use of music in it oh, oh yeah. yeah kind of sparse if I'm not mistaken but yeah. very powerful um, inception like yeah. I felt like very like mm-hmm. it comes in with these stabs mm-hmm. um, totally like yeah. when they're first pulling up to the hospital <laughs> I don't know I I mean famously like this movie doesn't have a, a score like this movie is entirely like all already composed classical pieces yeah, yeah. the Mahler stuff yeah. yeah yeah um and I don't know what piece they're playing when they first pull up to the hospital I found it a little heavy-handed it's a little like danger Will Robinson like it it's so it it's so bombastic it's yeah. Yeah. yeah it's and a bit much for me yeah, and that's but I thought like generally this was a very interesting use of music especially yeah. in the context of Scorsese's greater filmography. I mean cuz like many other films of his including most recently Killers of the Flower Moon, it is um supervised by Robbie Robertson uh of the band recently passed away. Um and you know, like in most cases with the Scorsese movie, 
I think like Scorsese in terms of his use of music is more of a soundtrack guy than a score guy. Sure. Yeah. yeah he um, favors more needle drops. Yeah. And you know, there's some great scores in his movies, but um, you know, more often you see like Scorsese movies are known for soundtracks. And this is the only case I know of so far where it is a soundtrack movie, but that uses not popular music that uses modern classical music for the most part. Sure. Um, and I mean, there are some really interesting uses here. I was personally, I believe it's music for Marcel Duchamp by John Cage that um, has kind of those, it just begins with those like big prepared piano thumps. Mm-hmm. Like during that, that scene we discussed earlier where um, DiCaprio is fading into a dream sequence and you just hear those thumps. I believe that's the piece that's playing there. I thought that was really well used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. But then also the the scene that may or the piece of music that's used maybe the most um, copiously in this movie is "On the Nature of Daylight" by Max Richter, which has appeared in a lot of movies. It is used a lot. It was memorably used um, at the beginning of Arrival. Ah, um, yeah, yes. that piece. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay, yeah. that makes all the sense in the world. Okay. Yeah, yep. also appeared in films such as uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Oh, um, yeah. that's a beautiful documentary. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wait, really? Yeah. I'm I, trying to remember when. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like that, I think it's in that portion, like maybe a third of the way through Jiro Dreams of Sushi where um, where the, the main chef is describing how like, when his kids graduated college, he wouldn't let them come back home because he wanted them to work. To work, yeah, yeah, right. okay, it's around okay. then. Okay. Um, wow. But yeah, that's a, that's a piece that's been used time and again in movies. I mean, there's a lot like some famous classical pieces that are used um, again and again to seemingly equal effect. But this is not an old piece. At that time, it was actually pretty new. I think it was released in uh, 2003. Um, but it's just made it's it's really made the rounds in film uh, soundtracks. Yeah, I mean it. It has an undeniable like a pulse. Yeah. yeah. Um, to it that I think is sort of almost meant to make make you tap into your own racing heart. Yeah. You know. But it's also like it's sad and yes, it is sad. Yeah. And it kind of has this adagio for strings vibe. Yeah. That um like I think most of the times when I hear it for a moment I think, am I hearing adagio for strings? Um and no, I'm you know, it's on the nature of daylight, but you know, I think they scratch a very similar itch. Cool. Um dude. Yeah. Good good uh good pulls there on the Thanks. music stuff. I yeah. like that. Yeah. I just like that this is a soundtrack where the names that come up are things like John Cage and Morton Feldman <laughs> and John Adams, which you, you see them in other film soundtracks, but you know, these are um it's just nice to see like the modern classical world get this kind of representation. Yeah. Modern classical music and this is a sweeping generalization, <laughs> but a lot of the stuff that I've heard is meant to uh almost sort of evoke very primal feelings. Yeah. And um and that I think works very well in a movie like Shutter Island. Yeah. Where you're asked to go really go with your gut into the film and let your gut kind of be your guide or your compass um, as you get introduced to new characters or mm-hmm. new scenarios and whatnot. Yeah. So uh, I totally, I totally see how um, how appropriate it is and how well it fits in mm-hmm. to to creating that kind of atmosphere and that experience for the viewer. Yeah, and it's yeah, that's just like one of the many many great things about 
this movie that we've gone into. Yeah, I have to admit, I have come away really enjoying this movie. Yeah. I, to me, this I, yeah. I'm going to come back to the Shyamalan comparison you made. This really feels like like a high-end version of a Shyamalan film with a really great Leonardo DiCaprio performance yeah, and a bunch of wonderful uh, supporting roles, which is something I feel like you don't always get in Shyamalan films. I don't know yeah. if he's really like known as a, an actor's director. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like there, I think there are some, like he has some performances obviously that are classic, but oftentimes they're the lead. I think one, one good ensemble one is, um, is, the village. Old. The village is a good ensemble one. Even old. I don't think you guys have seen old. I've yet. No. Seen but old, I actually no. think that's a pretty decent ensemble um, because there's not necessarily like a main character of that movie because it focuses on like a family and then some other people who have all ended up on the beach that makes you old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this feels like a really like uh, it, it feels like like the best stuff that he would do, but. Mm-hmm. Um, Shyamalan is not always consistent. Yeah. As, oh no. Famously <laughs> not. As much as I do generally enjoy most of his movies to various extents, but yeah, I mean, I do think that this is kind of like a highbrow version of a Shyamalan. Movie. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. In the yeah. Scorsese filmography too, it feels like um, this is. I mean, it's just it aesthetically, it's quite different. But it, on some level, it feels like it's on a similar continuum to like some of his really early Paul Schrader collaborations like Taxi Driver or The King of Comedy where subjectivity yeah. is so important in those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, some, the, there's some very similar character drives in those movies even though visually they take kind of a different form. Right. I mean, yeah, they do center around uh, ostensibly angry young men yeah. <laughs> um, trying to make sense of their world. I'd say yeah. that's most Scorsese. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. <laughs> Yeah, it may be, you know, really objectively kind of failing in the process, but, yes. you know, yeah. convincing themselves they they have succeeded. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I uh, considering the fact that I think I came into um, checking on, checking back in on this movie um, and was, it really could have gone either way. I think mm-hmm. uh, this, this was really fun, really fun rewatch. Yeah, Agreed. totally. Yeah. And I think we wanted to maybe wrap up with maybe a a new fun segment that we're trying out, um, which we're calling Unlikely Shared Universe, to try Ah, to figure out how, um, you know, the movie that we watch maybe could connect to another well-known movie, beloved movie. Or Uh, some other characters in it. Or some other characters in it in some way. Uh, I have a couple for this, and Julian, Mm -hmm. I know you have one. Do you want to go first? Yeah. You know, this, uh, so Mark Ruffalo's character, we first learn is named Chuck, but we later find out is in fact named Dr. Sheehan. Maybe, you know, this Dr. Sheehan character, as he continues his work at this institution in the 1950s, happens to hear in the news about a certain super soldier named Steve Rogers, who um, has been named Captain America um, for his reputation, and he's been kind of genetically engineered to get to this point. And then, you know, through some course of events, Dr. Sheehan himself becomes interested in this procedure, tries to become this superhuman, but the experiment goes horribly wrong, and something does happen to him, but he's not that kind of superhuman, where he just ends up having, you know, he looks normal in most situations, but when he gets really, really angry, he just turns green, he becomes a giant, and... um, you know, goes on rampages and people start to call this, I don't know, maybe uh, 
a Hulk or something? <laughs> yeah, perhaps. And, and we know. are told during this movie that he is a violent man. We yeah, are yeah. Told we are this true. Several yeah. times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he says he does not back down from um, yeah. from fights, right? Yeah, yeah and it also just as like kind of a given conceit of this game of unlikely shared universe, all these characters are going to go through a name change at some points. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would think so as well. Yeah, so you could argue that Bruce Banner is the name that he assumes when he realizes that he needs to keep this alter ego under wraps and uh, just change his identity and go elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it certainly sounds like at this uh, at Shutter Island, they they perform a lot of very progressive out there uh, techniques. Mm-hmm. And so it's very possible that his name in the uh, world of uh, mental rehabilitation has been tarnished, perhaps, mm-hmm. and maybe he has to reinvent himself in some way. And then the other um, unlikely shared universe uh, connection that I can think of, so perhaps this deputy warden McPherson ends up becoming, um, or maybe you know, maybe this facility is shut down at some point and everyone has to skip town, change their identity, and this deputy warden McPherson um, he ends up moving out to some family in California, uh, say maybe in the San Francisco area, and you know he lets some of his um, unsavory tendencies um, really abound there. Works, I believe, at I think like a watch factory or something like that, and um, then ends up becoming a watch factory. Know, yes, <laughs> becoming uh, not certain, but he, you know, his. Um, unsavory proclivities lead, lead end him up being a suspect in the investigation of the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> yes, although there would be a slight issue there because isn't Mark Ruffalo one of the investigating uh, uh, yeah. the police detectives in that That's scene? That's true. But they've each taken on new identities and they know they're going to blow it for each other and they're yeah. like, I can't expose you because then you're going to expose me. So we're yeah. just going to pretend we never met. And exactly. that's why we don't know the true identity of the Zodiac Killer. Ah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah, that's all I've got. I have a couple. The most obvious one for me was as soon as we started this movie, I'm like, why does Teddy hate the water so much? Why? Oh, why no. does he hate boats? <laughs> 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 so obviously, Teddy had a previous life as as Jack, uh, who did Jack, y- yeah, yeah, Jack um, from the Titanic, who you know uh, did not make it uh, to shore with Rose because she would not let him share the door that she was floating on, and he froze to death. But perhaps not. Perhaps he was pulled out of the water and yeah. brought back to Boston, and and, and lives very. And has a lot of carries a lot of resent around the women in his life because of this. Um, Has never been able to have a um, a healthy relationship with with women in his life. Yeah, or with water. Yeah, or with water. Exactly. (laughs) I I have to say too that I think there was a moment when you see DiCaprio up against the edge of the boat railing in Shutter Island, where I thought this is the anti. I'm the king of the world. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just thought of one. So halfway around the world, there is a rather large country that is looking uh, for independence from Britain. And there is a well-known-to-the-Western-world thinker and political activist who has really become the kind of figurehead uh, for this movement of independence. And um, he is assassinated in 1949 
um, because he is deemed um, possibly too dangerous, mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, that his his um, nationalistic pride and his also um, proclivity for peaceful protest uh, might actually become problematic. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to argue that maybe he didn't become assassinated. <laughs> maybe he was whisked off to a um, a hospital of some kind and miraculously clung to life. You know, they say that people who have um, fasted a lot in life, um, <laughs> that they are able to, um, that their body is able to actually subsist on very little. And it's very possible that uh, Mahatma Gandhi uh, actually uh, made it through uh, and survived the assassin's bullet and maybe rather quickly decided, you know what, one of the better ways that I can leave my mark in this world uh, after um, faking his own death and becoming a symbol for uh, independence uh, from imperialistic nations uh, one of the better things he could do is to try to make uh, a dent in the growing problem in America of uh, mental institutions, and so he uh, um, becomes a doctor mm-hmm. uh, and uh, decides uh, to uh, start a practice on Shutter Island and um, and go for some very wide ranging, very progressive uh, methods of rehabilitation for his patients. Yeah, and he must like start a great workout routine because he <laughs> yeah. really fills out by the time. He really does, yeah. No, he looks really, I mean, he's got some great living quarters there. Yeah, yeah very I mean, to, cozy to the point that Yeah, to the point that, uh, you know, uh, Chuck and Teddy uh, start to rethink their own lines of work there may be some misdirection of funds in this facility that's very true also but and, um and he assumes the name john Cawley in the process <laughs> yes i, yeah. I of course so they, they of course. all have to take a, a yeah yeah name yeah. change at some point i think i think so but um but yeah you know he decides to uh direct his um altruism in that direction yeah, yeah. i think that's fair he okay. he has a a, a big heart um, he really he, does yeah 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 he really does and and i think would be the the last person who would want to uh, rob humanity from any individual. Yeah, exactly. But um, cool. unfortunately, didn't didn't quite work out for <laughs> old Andrew Latus. That's a shame. <laughs> it really is. The only other quick one I had was, is this island also the island from Lost? <laughs> Which, oh. Uh, and, and I thought about this when, um, when Teddy goes up into the... Um, when he goes into the, like the, the little, caves? yeah, the cave, it's like a cave on a cliff face where yeah. he meets the hallucinated, Patricia yeah, um, Patricia the, Clarkson, yeah, the, the Rachel. Solano. Yeah. Um, there's a very similar cave in Lost that you see in, I think, the last season. And it's, it's a very important cave inhabited by a very powerful kind of deity seems like the wrong word, but very powerful presence that has a lot of control and power over the island. And I was like, ah, yes, you know, Rachel Solando, like she's the island's keeper now. Yeah, Uh, very much so. I'm just going to say one other thing too, that um, I got to admit, man, Andrew Latis is, I think would give Alex Honnold a run for his money. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) talk about scaling Free solo totally. up the side of yeah. that mountain. Very impressive. I mean, with like very like with without very much equipment at all. 
with with terrible shoes from you know like I don't know he got just sort of the run of the mill sort of orderly wardrobe yeah, yeah. and to scale that mountain and, and the cliffside I mean the cliffside and un- it had unreal. been like storming for oh, yeah. days so it's wet wet awful um and and still made it yeah I uh I gotta hand it to him Maybe, that's special yeah it's up there with John Voigt and Deliverance who had to actually climb that um that rock wall the last unlikely shared universe uh, connection i can make very quickly is that uh maybe this patient peter breen at shutter island is in fact um incarcerated communist spy klaus fuchs who (laughs) was imprisoned for leaking um details of the manhattan project to the soviet union while at los alamos i mean these are all there are what am I trying to say? They're unlikely but not impossible. They're <laughs> unlikely but not impossible. There is a a fraction of a possibility that that these things could um, could actually um, have taken place. Guys, this is a lot of fun. Um, yeah, agreed. And uh, I feel like Shutter Island is a good uh, is gonna hang out in my mind rent free for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Do we, do we talk about what movie we're doing next or movies? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Up yeah. next, we have a what we are calling a two shot which is, in essence, a double feature, two very similar movies um, that maybe you might, one might not have thought to put together initially. And, well, Emilio, do you want to take this one away? Yeah, I'll take this one because this one sort of is maybe the a closer to sort of suggestion box here. But these are uh, two movies that I kind of uh, threw out there. Um, we're going to take a look at Steven Shaneberg's uh, 2002 film Secretary uh, that is maybe best known for its uh, breakout performance by Maggie Gyllenhaal. And we're also going to look at, uh, I believe it's, it was released in 1990, but the film Atame, which is also known as uh, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down by Pedro Almodovar, um, which is going to be the first foreign film yeah. i think that we're going to yeah. be discussing I'm very excited for that. but we're going to we're going to talk about those movies and uh where perceptions of sanity uh and you know kind of can can lead conversations um about those two films secretary and uh, tie me up tie me down i am very interested <laughs> in how this conversation is going to go. And I have a long-standing personal relationship with the movie Secretary. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to get into that one. And yeah. Uh, yeah. and we'll do that in a couple weeks. Yeah, these are, though both of those movies are new for me, so I'm excited too. Yeah, they're they're new for me as well. I, I've watched several other Almodovar's, but this is the first time with this one. So I'm very excited. Yeah. Cool. Wonderful. Well, this has been the Sleepless Cinematic Podcast. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, we look forward to uh, hanging out in your ears again uh, very soon.